right, well, we continue on in our sermon series called Jesus Is. We're in Hebrews chapter 11. We have spent several weeks in Hebrews 11 by itself, uh, but we're looking at some Old Testament heroes of faith that the New Testament We're not in this alone, that we've had folks go before us, uh, and they leave an example for us as well. And so we started in Genesis, and we went way back to the beginning. We were talking about Abel's faith and Enoch's faith, and uh, Noah's faith. We're talking about uh, Abraham and Sarah. And today now, after we hit um, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph, finish out Genesis, we go into Exodus, and we're going to be talking about the life of Moses. So it'll be good. We uh, know as we talk about faith each week that context is key. A couple few weeks ago, uh, Tara and I, we took Silas over to Grandma and Grandpa's house here in town, uh, my in-laws, and they love seeing Silas, spending some time with him. And as we pulled into uh, the driveway, and I, I turned off the car and got out, at the same time that I got out, Tara had opened up her back door. Uh, she was in the back with Silas. She'd opened up her door, and I kind of ran into it. I, I bumped into it, and I joked. You're always joking with a two-year-old around, but you got to be careful what you say. And I said, hey, you hit me. And he giggled. He, he thought it was funny that Daddy got hit. Um, and we didn't think much of it. And so we took Silas, and he waddled up the sidewalk, comes in the house. And Grandma, my mother-in-law, comes walking up with all just all smiles, and she's going to pick up Silas. And, and before she can do that, though, it's just Grandma, me, and Silas. Silas yells, Daddy hit! Needless to say, in the conversation that followed, context was key. Context is always key. And so when we're talking about our faith, again, I don't want you to leave here tonight saying, man, I just need to have faith and my circumstances will get better or faith that, man, things are going to really turn for me with my job or these relationships. Like we're not in this so that life gets easier or smoother. We're in this because we believe that the life, death, resurrection of Jesus Christ and the implications for all who believe give us a better comfort, a better hope, a better joy than anything this world has to offer. And so I want that to be swirling around your mind as you think about those implications because the gospel is so incredibly deep. It's been said it's deeper than the deepest of oceans and yet shallow enough for children to play in. And so the gospel will blow your mind. And as we talk about the life of Moses, where we're not just talking about uh, a little bit of faith here and there without context. We're talking about faith in the context of opposition and persecution. So I don't know what your life is like right now if your faith comes up against opposition sometimes. Sometimes it's internal. <laughs> it's our own minds. Sometimes it's people in our lives that see us walking by faith, and they don't want that. Uh, it could be a wide variety of things. If you haven't faced persecution for your faith, uh, I'm not one of those doomsdayers, but um, you can probably expect it, not because I know what's going to happen in this world, but I know the words of Jesus, and I know he says you can expect it. And so as we walk through this tonight, I want you to look at your own faith and think about what happens when your faith in Jesus and walking in obedience, what happens when it comes face to face with some opposition? Does it get stronger? Does it stay the same? Does it fade away? What happens in those moments? And so hopefully you leave here a little bit stronger in your faith in Christ. Let's jump on in. Hebrews 11, starting in verse 23. We're going to walk through this verse by verse, verses 23 through 27 tonight. So we're not covering a lot, but it is packed full of good stuff. So verse 23, we'll hit that first. 
The author says, by faith, Moses, remember each one of these, by faith, by faith, by faith, by faith. You don't have to be a very good preacher to know the theme of chapter 11. By faith, Moses, when he was born, was hidden for three months by his parents because they saw that the child was beautiful and they were not afraid of the king's edict. All right, let's stop there. First thing we see is that faith gives up control. Faith gives up control. It makes us give up control. Now, that's going to make sense here in a little bit, but let's talk again about context. So uh, we got this pharaoh, we got this king of Egypt who sees his slaves, the Israelite people. They've been slaves for almost 400 years at this point, and he knows these Hebrews, if they get too much in number, like they could overthrow some things. You don't want people to get too many, um, too big, because they might, they might hurt what you got going on. So he says to all the Hebrew midwives who are helping all the Hebrew ladies have children, he says to them, listen, I want you to do something for me. When you get the girls, when, when the Hebrews have little girls, you can let them live, but when they have little boys, I want you to kill them. I want you to take them, and I want you to throw them in the Nile. And so the Hebrew women, the, the midwives, they go back, and they got a faith in God, right? So they're, they're sitting there thinking, man, we don't want to mess with the Hebrew God. We believe in the Hebrew God. And so they didn't do it. They didn't kill all the little Hebrew boys. And so the, the Pharaoh finds out and says, why didn't you do this? And they say, um, um, and interesting enough, whether it was uh, a lie or actually the truth, they say, hey, the, the, the ladies, the Hebrew ladies, they're so vigorous in the way that they give birth that they always have babies before we, we arrive. We show up too late. So that's why we haven't killed them. And so Moses' parents are the ones here that actually have the faith because they have a baby boy named Moses, and they don't let him die. They hide him for three months. But then they also send him floating down the Nile. They didn't kill him. They didn't let the midwives kill him. And it gives two reasons why they had this faith. First, because they, they weren't afraid. We'll backtrack here. They weren't afraid of the king's edict. So they saw the king. They saw death. They saw consequences right before them. And they said, nope, we believe that God is better and bigger and stronger than any persecution we face right in front of us. Like, we'll, we'll do this. Daniel ain't got nothing on us. Like, we're paving the way for Daniel and his buddies. All right? And so we're not scared of what the king's going to do. And then number two, it says that they saw that the child was beautiful. The NIV translates it uh, that, he was, um, that he was no ordinary child. The meaning here when, when it says beautiful is that they saw there was something special about the boy. And keep in mind, they got a faith in the Hebrew God. But they see, man, God's got a purpose. He's got a plan for this little baby boy. He's a healthy, strong little guy. Like, we don't want to kill him because we love him anyway. But we got to do whatever it takes to keep him alive. Because they see the redeeming qualities of God in their lives. And they see this little boy say, no, <laughs> odds are stacked against him right now. But we believe God's going to do something big with this man's life. So they put themselves at risk. Put themselves at risk. So, again, there's two acts of faith by the parents. There's, number one, that they held him. You can picture what it would have been like for three months, day in, day out. They're falling in love. They love that little boy probably before he was born, but they're falling in love with this baby. They're saying, we're going to hide him. So they held on. So faith makes you hold on to things, even when others want to take those things from you. When you've got God's redeeming story hovering around your mind, in your circumstances, you hold on to things. But then, on the same token... Because like, knowing they love him so much, after three months, something happens where they say, you know what, we're going to put him on this little bit of sticks and let him go down the Nile River. 
So long before there was walking by faith <laughs> in the New Testament, there was floating by faith back in the Nile. And so what's the greater act of faith, that they hid the kid for three months or that they let him go? Well, both of them are huge. I'll tell you what, for anyone who's held on to stuff, you know how hard it is to let things go, even when you know God's got a plan for people in your lives. That's hard. But it sets you free spiritually when you're able to look at everything in your life and see, again, God's redemption story going to be lived out in it that you don't have to control things. You don't have to manipulate things. It's hard. I remember when Silas was born, we were so thankful. We'd waited over four years. We just, man, maybe I'm just not as smart as I thought I was. We couldn't get pregnant. We didn't know how to get pregnant. It just wasn't working. God was saying, no, it ain't happening. But then after that fourth year, we get pregnant. And we know it is a gift of God. We were so excited. It was a wonderful time as Tara w w was pregnant with Silas. And I remember knowing this is a gift of God. So right off the bat, I'm thinking, man, God's got a plan for this little baby. But when the baby was born, I looked at Silas. I already loved him. But I'll tell you what, I was insecure to hold him, right? I was insecure because dudes, when you're like 25 years old and you don't have many baby brothers and sisters, you don't, you, you're not comfortable in any way, shape, or form holding babies, even like the guys who are like, no, I got a little cousin. It's like, no, touch my baby. You're single, dude. You don't know what you're doing. And so even as a married guy, I wasn't used to it. And I, I was so insecure, but I held little baby Silas and I loved him. And before you know it, the minutes, the moments, uh, the weeks pass by and I'm more and more comfortable with them. And so the hard thing was when mom and dad and all my brothers and sisters come from Kansas to Utah and they come to visit and they want to hold the baby. And you wouldn't think, you'd think we'd be excited to, but in my mind, I'm like, no, don't touch my baby. I'm glad you came out here. Good, you can get a picture, but I'll hold him, and you can get a picture in the background. And my mom, she she got five kids. We're all alive. She's done some things right. And when we were little, we had kids running around all the time because she babysat all the kids in the community. Like she just she uh, she just does it well. She's good with babies. And yet I remember I hovered over my mom. She was ticked. I treated her like she'd never touched a baby before. Because I wanted her, okay, you got to hold him this way, you got to do this. And I was just insecure. But when you see God's plan for someone's life, it makes you hold on and love well, but also give up and let go because you know God's in control. And the insecurities and the fears of you having to control that situation. I don't, I just, I don't want his head to turn this way. I don't want his back off. God's smarter than you. He can take care of it. So Moses' parents have come face to face with this. And you say, well, listen, <laughs> you know, they did that in the Old Testament, and, and this is a great story for us, but like, we can't look at our own relationships and the things that we're responsible for in the same way. No, we can. We can. And, and you argue, well, listen, I got kids, or I got a spouse, or I got a job that I'm responsible for, and so I can't, I can't just not worry. Like, it's a mama, it's a dad, it's our duty to worry about things. Listen, there's a big difference between stewarding a gift from God and lording over it. You're not the Lord. You can't control things. But man, when we connect in an earthly way with things and our sin nature takes over, if we're not finding everything we need in Christ, we're going to try to find it in the relationships around us. And it always ends with manipulation and frustration and confusion. And we try to find things in someone that we can only find in Christ. Even when it comes to babies. 
You see, it all happens because we, we, we all, when we worry, when we get frustrated in these relationships, it's always signs of unbelief. We all have unbelief. I've got unbelief. You've got unbelief. We believe to some extent, I'm going to guess the vast majority of us, in the good news of Jesus Christ. But do we always give every part of our life to him? Do we always believe in every way? No, we know, just like the man who goes before Jesus, I do believe, but help my unbelief. And so when, when we worry, we often see that the worry is because we're trying to do things that only God can do in these relationships. You know what it's like. Oh, I got, I got a kid, and oh, this is a gift from God, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to lead him to Jesus, but boom, now I'm going to step in and start lording over him. I got a relationship, and it was good, and oh, I'm just so excited. We started this relationship, and I think God sent this person to me, and it's just wonderful. But before you know it, you're trying to change him. See, there's always things. You find yourself, and I love the way God has designed us, as painful as it is, when you find yourself frustrated in, relation, frustrated in relationships, even over your job, even over the things God has given you, it often points back to us trying to be God when we can't be God. How many of us are frustrated right now because we got someone in our lives who needs to repent, and they just ain't repenting? They need a change of mind, but it ain't happening. And so you talk to old Pastor Ryan or someone else, you say, oh, what do I do to help them? To I, well, until you become Jesus and don't try, you can't change them. Well, I just, I really, there's this other person, and they say they want to grow in their walk with God, but they're just not growing. Listen, what did the Bible say about us sowing seed and watering, but who makes it grow? You say, well, I thought things were good at the beginning, and now the relationship is falling apart, and I just, I want to make them love me. Like, I want them to want to love me. You can't make them want that. All these are heart issues, and you know you don't change hearts. The famous one is, well, if we just get married, if we just take another step of faith together, like, they're going to change. We can change them. You can't change nobody. You can't make anybody stay. You can't make anyone love you. You can't make that business or that job opportunity go so well that you can't ever lose the job. Like, you can't control things. And you were never meant to. How many of us tonight are wasting time? We're frustrated because we're trying to manipulate and control situations in ways that we were never meant to. And so we say on one hand, I do believe in Jesus. I believe in the implications of his life, death, and resurrection. But right now, you're frustrated because you're trying to be Jesus, and you're not Jesus. Instead of pressing into him, you try to become him. And people resent you for it. And you don't walk by faith anymore. In him, you're walking by faith in yourself. But you see your own limitations, so it hurts. It hurts. But man, when you see Moses' parents with this kind of faith, you see <laughs> that the purpose of all relationships and all circumstances are to reflect the gospel. And that if you have your mind on something bigger, you can see things in front of you in a much more healthy and clearer way. That you don't need them to be something only Jesus can be. The gospel sets you free. It sets you free to give up control. Does that make sense? No? Okay. It does. A friend told me the other day, this is random, and uh, a little bit of a, a side note. He said, you know, you drink out of this monster water bottle, 
you should just guzzle it sometime when you're preaching and just freak everybody out and become like waterlogged. And so I always have this hypothetical going like, what if now I did that and people just did not know how to respond? Like just I'm transitioning and I just start guzzling and guzzling and guzzling. They're like, oh my gosh, this is not healthy. So I figured I'd share that with you just for fun. So be, be aware, it's coming. All right, faith makes us give up control now that we're centered again. So Hebrews 11, verses 24 and 25, we'll hit both of these. It says, again, by faith, Moses, when he was grown up. So now this isn't mom and dad's faith anymore. This is Moses' faith. When he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God, that's the Hebrew people, than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. Okay, next thing we see is that faith associates with the wrong crowd. This will make sense because the wrong crowd actually is the right crowd, but give me, give me a moment to explain it. So the author actually does something a little bit different. Like, here's the thing. We, and, and I love Hebrews, because if you're reading through Hebrews and you're reading about these stories, you're like, okay, I know the story of Moses, whatever. He actually paints a different picture than what we see in Exodus. Like, in Exodus, we don't see Moses at any point saying, you know what, I refuse to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter. Remember Pharaoh's daughter? That's the one, her maidservants, they found him in the Nile, they raised him up, he became part of the family there in Egypt's household. He had comfort, he had riches, he had everything he probably needed, and more. But we don't see him say that he doesn't want to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter. So the author in Hebrews, he knows more than we know which is nice. It gives you a bigger picture here. It gives you more details to the picture. And so he he decides, like, I don't want to sit here in comfort and maybe even spiritual captivity. I would rather be out with the slaves. I would rather be out with people who, like, I don't have anything to gain except obeying God and being with the people I should be. Because I'm a Hebrew. I don't belong in this Egyptian household. And I want to follow their God. But he's going to lose everything if he goes and does this. But he gives it up. He wants to. He left the cool kids to hang out on the other side of the tracks. He left the rich guys to go with the poor slaves. There's a lot at stake for a guy like Moses. But why? Because he knows God's redemption, his story and his plan go through these people. And when you know that God's activity is with a certain group of people, it doesn't matter anymore race, ethnicity, background, history, tradition, reputation. You want to be where God's moving. And sometimes God moves in the most unlikely of people. And if he says, get up and get out of this comfy office and go across town and spend some time with these people, like, you do it. You do it. It might go against everything your mind tells you, but you do it. The gospel is that we get up because Jesus left his throne to come down to earth to be with us, even though he didn't have to. He could have stayed up there, and he chose not to. He chose not to. I think the church, on a regular basis, every day, we got a decision to make. You know it. You know in your heart of hearts. Like, you could come here every week. We could listen to, to, to some good music and hear some good preaching, and it's good. But we got a decision to make. We can sit in our pews, which aren't pews, but you know what I'm talking about. We could sit in our pews, or we could hit the streets and get uncomfortable, whatever that looks like in your context. And you know it's so easy to blend in. And in most cases, no one's even going to confront you and say, man, are you, are, you, are you getting out of your comfort zone? You even come to this right now. And you can get up and you walk out and you, like, 
maybe no one's going to confront you about that. Maybe no one's going to challenge you on that. But you know, deep down, you're like, I don't want to live shrink-wrapped, thrown on a pew, waiting for Jesus to come back. I want to be part of this bigger plan and picture. Has anyone felt that before? And it just eats at you and gnaws on you. Man, I know. I know what that's like. But it's easy even for me to not have a proper perspective on things. Last week, I think it was Thursday, um, my office is just is just right over here, and then the other guys, they're downstairs, and so I'm the only one up here, but I, I can see out of the window anyone who comes into the parking lot, right? And so normally, not a ton of people come during the day, but um, once in a while, someone will show up, whether they're walking or driving in, and they, they'll come and ask for benevolence, like, hey, I need help paying a bill, I need gas, I need whatever, and, and you hear their story, you minister to them, you love them, all that good stuff. Um, but it's easy for those of you who have helped folks like that before you know how your mind can just become a little bit skeptical after a while, right? And it starts to almost become more of a chore, like, okay, God told me to do this, I'm just going to do it, and your heart's not in it always, and you got to be careful. Well, on Thursday, someone pulled up, and it was about 1 o'clock, and after 15 minutes or so, it was just a girl by herself in her car. Um, after 15 minutes or so, I thought, this is weird. Nobody just pulls up and then sits there. Maybe they're waiting for someone, didn't recognize her, looking behind her constantly. I didn't know what was going on. So I went out, asked her, I said, is there anything I could do for you, help you? Um, I mean, it's a church parking lot, but it's still private property. So like, it's kind of odd for someone just to be, and then with everything that's going on in the news and bombs and everything, you, you get a little skeptical real fast. Um, but she said, no, I'm fine. I'm good. I mean, are you waiting for anybody? Um, no, I'm fine. Like, it was just really strange. She didn't have any any explanation for being there. Um, but I, I let her hang out. I mean, you know, I didn't want to kick her off the property there. Um, within an hour, like she's still there. She She's still there. And, and within an hour, I'm looking out there a couple times, and I'm seeing her, like, dancing. I can hear the bass going in her car. She's turning her car on and off at different times. And, and so I can see her, like, dancing. I'm pretty sure she was whipping and nay-naying and <laughs> doing the stanky leg. And I... But there was things happening. I was like, what is going on? Why is she dancing? I didn't, it was so strange. Like I could not put these pieces together in my mind. And then within another hour, she's still there, but someone shows up and they start yelling at each other and they're fighting. It looked like maybe her mom. But I, didn't, I was like, what is going on? This is weird. So then I go back out there a couple times. I actually left, <laughs> went to Walmart, came back. She's still there. So it's like three hours now. And I'm just, I'm like, what's going on? I start, I start talking to her, and she's like, no, everything's fine. I go back in. I come back an hour later, like, what can we do for you? How can I help you? She said she was homeless um, and that she was just trying to figure out what to do. For four hours, I was thinking to myself, maybe I should call the cops and get rid of this thing, like in this situation this is weird. And I struggled mightily in my office because I'm trying to get work done. I'm trying to do stuff. Listen to me. I'm trying to get work done, right? And I'm trying to do stuff thinking like, man, this is like trying to cook with a two-year-old nagging at you. And you're just like, okay, you got to sit down for a little. Like, I can't just have someone in a running car for four hours outside of my window, not knowing what they're here for or what they're capable of. And it's just nagging at me. And then to find out her story was simply, I don't know what else to do. I don't know where else to go, but I'm here. 
And I gave her some resources, but I thought to myself, man, we live in a day and a time where even the pastor of the church sees the person in the parking lot who, for whatever reason, said, I feel safe here. I'm going to come here and just see what happens. Even the pastor's thinking, how can we take care of this and be done with it? And man, it's a heart check. And yet Moses is saying, I'm going to leave my comfy office. And I'm going to go sit in the parking lot with my people because I believe that's where God's moving, and that's where I want to be. I'm not just going to ask them how they're doing. Hey, I know you're in slavery, and you're in bondage. I'm going to go back in my office if you need something. No, he goes and he sits with them, and he works with them, and he serves them. And all we can think, all I can think is how can we, how can we get rid of them? Faith will always push you to places that you don't really want to go. Because the plan is always much bigger than what you want to do in life. Remember, I'm not going to spend much time on it, but Luke 15, the three parables we see Jesus talking about the lost sheep and the 99 and then the one and going after. And then he shares another story about a woman with 10 coins and loses one, uh, but then finds it and rejoices and throws a party. And then we have the big story of the parable of the prodigal son. And grace and religion, all of that starts with Luke 15:2. The Pharisees are saying to him, why does Jesus hang out and associate and eat with sinners and jacked up people? And he shared all three of those parables within the context of, this is why I hang out with the wrong crowd. Because I came because I want to save them. And if we're a church that believes God wants to save people and he wants to work through us, we've got to be hanging out with people who are going to make us look stupid. They're going to annoy us. They're going to make us feel foolish. They're going to make us look bad. Because faith always will take your reputation and say, are you willing to sacrifice it for his reputation? It'll always make you decide if you're going to sit on the pew or go out to the street. You can, I could tell you all day long my stories about Nebraska and Utah and leaving and going and these big steps of faith. I don't want to live in a place where the only sermon stories I have for you is what we did three years ago. Like what happened this week? Did I associate with people that make me uncomfortable for the sake of the gospel this week? But you don't think about yourself when you die to yourself. And you've got to choose to die to yourself every day so that you can live in him. Verse 26. I'm not going to spend much time on this one, but this is interesting theologically. It says, he considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth. Oh, this is beautiful. Greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt. For he was looking to the reward. <laughs> Number three, simply, Moses knew Jesus. Moses knew Jesus. So reproach here means disgrace for the sake of Christ. That Moses looked and he said, yeah, I got all this stuff here in Egypt. I got all these riches. I, got, I could live comfortably. But I think that the better choice would be to suffer for the sake of Jesus. How many of y'all remember Jesus' name getting popped up all over the book of Exodus? I don't. 
I remember visions. I remember a burning bush. I remember Mount Sinai. I remember uh, glory clouds and pillars of fire. Like I, I remember those, but I don't remember the meeting between Moses and Jesus where they're just sitting there talking. It's like, hey, Jesus, how's it going? Oh, this is great. Like I don't remember that. I don't remember that. But hopefully we're putting together the pieces that these Old Testament patriarchs, that when they saw God the Father, they might not have known the name of Jesus, but they knew Jesus and the Father are one. And when I see one, I see the other, and they recognize it. And the author of Hebrews is giving us a glimpse that Moses knew some way, somehow, Jesus. He knew more about this plan of redemption. We know it because Moses is more than likely the author of not just a couple books, but the first five books. One of them, of course, being Genesis. And you know in Genesis 3, when the the serpent had tricked Adam and Eve and the cursings and whatnot come down on them. And he speaks of, God speaks of someone who's going to come and crush the serpent's head sometime. So like the plan of redemption was way back in the garden. And God knew it even predestined before all of that to begin with. But Moses is aware of the redemption plan. He's aware of what's going to be going on with Israel to some extent, but he knows Jesus somehow. It's important. You think you just assume those old boys don't have a clue who Jesus is. They might not have been calling him by name, but when they saw the Lord, they knew the Lord. I think it's a beautiful foreshadowing as well as the go- uh, of the gospel itself. You guys remember a story uh, anywhere else in scripture about a baby who is maybe going to be killed by the local king. And so then the parents do something drastic and go and move and go somewhere else. And then that baby ends up being someone who, who leaves a throne and he comes down and hangs out with a whole bunch of captives and sets them free. Do you remember any story like that in the Bible? It's the gospel of Jesus. So this is a foreshadowing, a beautiful foreshadowing of the gospel. And you know the Hebrews who would have been reading this, like they're hearing this, they, hear, they know what it's like to leave their people and their law and being Hebrews themselves and, and facing persecution from the Jews, which is what was going on in the book of Hebrews, and knowing what it's like to suffer for the sake of Christ, but knowing, hey, it's better. We've tasted it. It's better. We're a little discouraged right now. That's why this letter is being written to us, but we know what it's like, and it's better. It's better. And Moses is saying, I think, I think that the reproach of Christ is better than comfortable living. We're not talking about like, oh, I believe following Jesus is better. No, like following Jesus with the guarantee of suffering for him is better than anything else the world could offer. And that's easy to say if you ain't got much in life, right? But this old boy is coming from Pharaoh's house. He had a lot. I think some of us, I think, I think all of us, we spend a good amount of time doing everything we can to avoid opposition and persecution in our faith. Like we feel like maybe God's telling us to do something, but we don't want to tell our friends, right, because then we're held accountable to do what he told us if we tell anyone around us. Or if it's a little bit crazy, we don't want to tell anyone for fear of they're going to think, boy, you're goofy. It's one, oh, you know what, you can move over there, but just tell me you're moving for a job, not because Jesus tells you. Because we're a bunch of non-believers in this family and we don't want to hear it. We don't want to hear any of that Jesus talk. Some of us will go to great length to avoid it. And I'm not saying that we should be gluttons for punishment and just be goofballs. But I'm telling you what. 
It's a beautiful thing for each and every one of us to experience suffering (laughs) for the sake of Christ. To know there is a unity that comes when you experience the sufferings of Christ. You read the rest of the New Testament. Peter, Paul, they're talking about suffering, suffering, suffering all the time. Persecution, persecution all the time for the sake of Christ. There is a beautiful unity as you see and experience some of what he experienced. And when you do it not for your own name or glory or because you ain't got nothing better to do, but you're doing it because he's telling you to do it, there's a beautiful fellowship with Jesus in that that you can't experience in any other way in this life. Don't you want to be someone who knows like, man, my God is so good that even when I suffer and things are the worst, but it's for him and in his name and with his power, it is better. It is better than anything else. It's sweeter. I think you get to a place in the life of a believer when you mature that you start to, now be careful, I want to be careful how I say this, but you, you, you mature to a point where you start to see all of life's oppositions, all of the circumstances, tragedy, the hard stuff, the good stuff, but you see such a clear picture of the purpose of this life and, and this waiting room before heaven and eternity. You see such a clear picture that you see everything in life as gold because it makes you press into Jesus. And you and I, we could talk about the hardships all day long and the details of the drama going on in our lives. Listen, I know some things are caused because I'm a goofball. But then there's a whole bunch of stuff in life that's just going to happen because we live in a fallen, broken planet. And there's going to be some persecution that happens because you step out in faith for Jesus. But all of it, it should, all of it should make us press into Jesus. And if that's the sweetest thing we got in life, man, you can rejoice when bad things happen. I want to be careful how I say that. I want to be sensitive knowing some of you are going through some junk right now, more than likely. So you might not be able to see it, but when you taste it, you know what I'm saying. Last but not least, verse 27. By faith he left Egypt, not being afraid of the anger of the king, for he endured as seeing him who is invisible. Last but not least, We see that faith ticks people off. Faith ticks people off. Now, let's go back here to the meaning because this this can get a little bit, um, well, it can be a little bit confusing. Because it says that, that he left Egypt by faith. And it says that he wasn't afraid of the anger of the king. Now, he left Egypt a couple times. Remember, he, he got all haughty, he killed the Egyptian, then he fled, fled to Midian. Exodus chapter 2 says he did that because he was afraid. So is God talking about the first time he left when he killed this dude and got in trouble and left and went and married Zipporah and all that good stuff? Or is it talking about the overarching, hey, he's called back and he leads the people in the Exodus out? More than likely, he's talking about the latter, talking about the Exodus. Because he was obviously afraid the first time he left Egypt. But here's the bottom line. Sometimes... (laughs) Sometimes faith in Jesus isn't, isn't just something that we have when we face opposition. Sometimes it creates opposition. Sometimes walking by faith creates persecution. If your faith isn't ticking people off to some extent, something's wrong. Either your faith is belief that isn't leading to action which I'm not sure it's real faith at all. Or 
you're just not hanging out with any non-believers who find what you do being as being weird. <laughs> like if you're just in a Christian bubble where it's like, oh, you're walking by faith in Jesus, that's great, go do it. Even though I've found when you really walk by faith in Jesus, his plans are going to be big enough to where they're going to tick off even the Christians around you. Some of them are going to be stagnant. Now, you can tick people off with your faith because you're obnoxious or because you're actually following the will of God. I've got to be careful even as I preach. Oh, I've got to make sure that like, I'm not just yelling at people <laughs> because I'm just an obnoxious person. I've got to make sure that, like, man, I'm preaching the word of God and that this is just passion and, and I can't do much about how I come across. But you've got to be careful because you can offend people because of a couple different reasons and one of them definitely ain't good. I think faith's offensive to the people who are around us because it feels like you're sliding them, right? Like it feels like you're sliding those around you. If you've got non-believers, you've got people who love you, think about it from their perspective. They think that, for the most part, your faith in Jesus is kind of silly to begin with. But then they also feel like, you know what? I'm here, and the way the world speaks of love is that we're going to be dependent on each other, codependent. We're going to find our all in all in each other. We're going to be in everything that we need for each other. So if you're going to tell me that you're going to follow a God and it's going to be that you make a decision like leave here or go do something else or in this relationship, like you're telling me that you're going to follow something invisible over what you got right here that's tangible. And so it feels like a dig at them. It feels like you're sliding them. Like you're saying, you're not, you know what? You stink so much that I'd rather just follow something that you don't even believe in that's invisible than to be with you. That's what it feels like. They feel abandoned to some extent. The irony, <laughs> the irony uh, of actions of faith is that it'll tick people off at the beginning, but if you follow through and you walk through that faith long enough, if you keep on persevering in that faith, it'll actually, a lot of times, turn around and minister to those same people. Because at first, they see you simply abandoning them and maybe their plan for your life, but if you keep on following and they see the presence of God in your life, even if they don't quite recognize it, they just know, man, something's going on there, it'll actually, the presence of God in your life will to some degree compel them and draw them in and possibly comfort them. So when you walk by faith and you're taking that step just enough to tick the people off around you, you got to keep on walking forward. you got to keep on walking forward. You can't say, I'm doing the exodus, but I'm going to stop halfway through. No, you're either in the promised land or you're not. There's no halfway in between. And if you're going to take that step and tick people off, sometimes it's in most of our lives we feel like, man, this is where, like, I just want to turn back right now because it seems like it's just getting worse, worse, worse. The relationships, people are hating on me. This isn't good. I'm taking some trouble. And you're going to see some breakthroughs if you keep on walking. And they're going to start to appreciate, maybe even respect you. And in the process, you hope that God's drawn them in and he's ministering to them. But you've got to keep on pushing through and walking because if you don't finish in that faith, they're going to say, hmm, it ain't that great. You stopped walking. Why would I want it? I'll stay here. So don't shrink back because you're ministering to folks. I remember when we planted in Nebraska just a year and a half ago, we came with a tiny team, a small group of people. And we're in Hastings, Nebraska, 25,000 people. And they didn't really want us there. We didn't have a whole bunch of people who were like, oh, hey, great, another church plant. It's traditional Catholic Nebraska City, they, they weren't pumped that we were there. No high fives uh, when we were walking into town. Like I, We just didn't get that. But we met in the home with just eight or ten of us for like six months. 
I was preaching through the gospel of Mark. We're taking the Lord's Supper together. It was great. It was intimate. It was wonderful. But man, we knew if we're going to impact this city, we got to get out of the home and we got to get into the public square. We got to get out. And so I remember we went and we looked at buildings and we prayed and we're like, God, what do you want us to do? And we really believed that God was going to do something powerful in the city. And so we went and we found a place downtown. And we couldn't afford it, but this guy just happens to be an old church planner himself who owns this building downtown. And he says, I'll give it to you for a little bit cheaper, something you can afford. So he lowers the price for us to get in. And so we pay, but we have to go through, now I, I got to sign this lease, but we also have to go through a two to three month process with the city, standing before city officials and go through this licensing stuff to get permission to be able to meet there as a church, right? They had all kinds of city laws and ordinances and whatnot, and then there's liquor laws. We knew there were bars all around us, but this is the hot, so this is where we want to be. We think this is where the light is going to do the best, where it's as dark as dark can be, right? So we're downtown, we're trying to do this, and the first meeting comes up. And I'm honestly, like I'm naive, thinking, not sitting around city hall meetings my whole life, I'm thinking, we're going to go in there, no one's probably going to be there, and, and they're going to stamp this thing and say, okay, show up for the final approval next month, and it'll be good. We already sunk in a fifth or a sixth of all the money we had into renting this place for the couple months, even though we couldn't actually meet in the building yet, but we take a huge step of faith in it. We show up, and there's 10, 15 people there, but everyone important in the city is sitting around uh, in this meeting, and there was an old boy that came up to me. I could tell there was a couple folks looking at me funny, but one old boy, he walked up to me, and he said his name, and he said, I just want to introduce myself. I recognized the name. When I first came into town, they told me, hey, this guy, he's the biggest dog around. He controls everything. If he's for you, it'll go well. If he's against you, it will not go well, but you need to get in good favor with him. And he shakes my hand, and he says, hey, I just want to let you know, uh, are you the church trying to get in downtown? And I said, yeah. Keep in mind, there's churches meeting downtown all over the place. So I'm thinking, we're, we're not going to have opposition. He says, I just want to say, I don't, I don't want you to take this personally, but uh, I'm representing this blah, 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 exchange commission thing for downtown renovation, and we're going to oppose you tonight. And if for some crazy reason you make it through tonight, we're going to oppose you again next month until this falls through. But just know, it's probably not going to get passed tonight, and I don't want you to take that personal. And me being just enough of a punk um, uh, <laughs> to stand up, I said, without blinking an eye, I said, oh, I don't take it personal because it's not me you're fighting against. And um, and it was like a Hollywood movie. He threw his head back and like cackled and just laughed and then walked away. And I was like, oh, this isn't going to go good. They slaughtered us. One by one, they got up there and they slaughtered us. They gave all these good, re amazing reasons. I was like, I agree with you. We shouldn't be downtown either. By the time they were done, it did not go well for us at all. Um, but, you know, I, I was like, you know what, whatever. I don't know what's going to happen here, but I believe God's got a plan. And so if it is that I'm going to preach the gospel to the city commissioners, then guess what they're going to get? I still get my chance. So I get up there and I preach the gospel and I tell them all about the Jesus and the hope and the light and all this good stuff. And then we get out there, the newspaper guy, he puts a little microphone in my face and he says, tell me about what just happened. That was, you know, interesting. And so I was not expecting it, but I share a few things. Next day, we go from no one knowing us to we're on the front page of this little town's newspaper, and they butchered everything and said a gospel community church. It's just a God spell community church. Like it was, it was like, oh man, it was so bad. My name was Brian Booth or something. Uh, and I was just like, this is not good at all. This is going downhill fast. But now everyone knows of us. I'm still thinking God's got a plan for this. But the story wasn't that, oh, we just continue to press forth in this one thing and like we've got to be downtown. No, we dropped it. We ended it right there that day. 
said, nope, we're not going to fight the city. We're here for the city. We're not going to fight them. Preach the gospel to them. But God got a plan, so we ended it. Broke the lease, lost a fifth of everything we had. We didn't get our money back. I felt like a fool. Next day, this old boy calls me. And he said, yeah, your old landlord called me. He said, I'm a Catholic guy, but I love Jesus, and I got a place for 2500 bucks a month. I was, we were paying seven, seven, seven fifty for the other place. He said, um, you needed a place. I'll give it to you for the same price you had for the other one. You can rent it for a year or two. Do church here. It's an old Verizon wireless building, but it was brand stinking new, beautiful, and it was perfect. And I was like, oh, man, this is good. And then after that, we went back, and we had to go through all the permits again. And I shared the gospel with them again. I think they were tired of hearing the gospel, so they approved us. But I remember after that, we were in the newspaper again, so people are hearing about us. And and so I went to that old boy that I had mouthed off to a little bit earlier in the first one. And I went into his office, and I sat down, and I shared the gospel with him again. And I'm pretty sure he was just sick and tired of hearing it. But he, he said, man, you're passionate about this. Like, this is really going to make a difference in the city. And I was like, it, the only thing it does do is make a difference. Like, it can't do anything other than make a difference. It changes lives. And, and he turned around, and he, he cut me a check for the $300 that we had wasted in the permit that got denied. And he said, if you need anything, he said, you let me know. And if you get out of this building, you let me know, I'll find you another one. What if we would have stopped when we got slammed that first night? And it wasn't that we persevered to get again in that old building. It's that we knew God's plan was bigger and that God's going to do what only God can do. When you continue on in the faith, opposition often turns to friends because they see God and they don't see you anymore. we got to be a church that doesn't just find that our faith is strengthened in opposition, but that our Faith speaks so loud as we understand the truths of Jesus to be true that we create a little bit of opposition in the way that we live. When the early church had persecution, their faith, (laughs) it grew as they were scattered and what the Roman Empire said, we want to squelch and stop this thing, only exploded the local church. Because when God's back is up against the wall, he always breaks down the wall and expands his kingdom. And when we leave here and we, we intentionally, as the gospel sinks in, and we say we can't do anything other than to make disciples, I give my life to this. I give my life to this. You're going to see a legacy of disciple making, not throughout just the people you're ministering to, but throughout the people in their lives. And there's going to be a movement, a spiritual movement, that maybe you can't even see right now. Maybe you don't even see it years from now. But it will go and go and go, and the ripple effect will change this world. I am thoroughly convinced of this. Because the gospel doesn't do anything else but change the world. And God's redemption plan is not going to stop because of the one or two people that are heckling you right now in your life, in your faith. It's going to blow right through it. It's going to save them. It's going to do something bigger than we ever could have imagined. But we as the people of God don't step down in faith. We step up and we keep walking. That's what Moses does. And it wasn't easy, but it was worth it because he saw Jesus. Let's pray.